0: Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome our guest moderator, author and contributor to the New York Times and Rolling Stone magazine, Alan Light, and our guest this evening, editor-in-chief of Guitar World magazine and author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page, available on the iBookstore, Brad Talinsky. Hello, everybody.
1: Thanks for coming out. Really appreciate it. Um, to start out the evening, first I'd like to thank Alan for doing this with me. Great. Um, the first thing I'm gonna do is just uh, read an excerpt from uh, my book, Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Uh, and I'm gonna start out with a section on uh, the band's biggest record, Led Zeppelin IV. It was the winner of 1971 and the executives at Atlantic Records were giddy with anticipation. At any moment, they were expecting Led Zeppelin to deliver a new album, and early reports were that it was their best work yet. A goddamn epic, it was rumored, at just-in-time for Christmas. But the label's seasonal good cheer was quickly extinguished when the band's formidable manager, Peter Grant, made a rather frosty announcement. The band, he decreed, decided that its fourth album would have no title, no mention of the group on the outside jacket, no record company logos or catalog numbers, and no musician's credits. Atlantic was flabbergasted. No title, no credits, all hell broke loose. They told us we were committing professional suicide and threatened war, page recalls. But the cover wasn't meant to antagonize the record company. It was designed as a response to the music critics who maintained that the success of our first three albums were driven by hype and not talent. We wanted to demonstrate that it was the music that made Zeppelin popular. It had nothing to do with their name or image, so we stripped everything away and let the music do the talking. The saga of Led Zeppelin IV officially starts in December of 1970 at Island Studios, located in West London, As the band members entered the recording facility during that bone-chilling month, their spirits were high, and with good reason. They had produced three consecutive platinum discs in as many years, and their concerts were breaking box office records the world over. As Zeppelin's popularity soared, so did their ambitions to top themselves. Unfortunately, the initial sessions at Island failed to yield any real mojo, so the members decided that it was time for a radical change. We thought it would be interesting to record someplace that had some atmosphere and just stay there, Paige says. The idea was to create a comfortable working environment and see what would happen. Robert and I had written a lot of our previous album, Led Zeppelin III, in an isolated area in the Welsh mountains and really enjoyed the experience. It was very beautiful, and there was nothing to distract us this time, we thought it would be fun to bring the whole band somewhere and hire a mobile unit to capture that moment in time. Page had heard about an old house in the English countryside a few hours outside of London that Fleetwood Mac had used as a rehearsal space, and he decided to check it out. Built in 1795, Hedley Grange was a rather large three-story stone structure that had originally been used as a workhouse for the poor and the insane. It was far from lavish, but its rough charm suited the guitarist just fine. Plus, the 200-year-old building offered something that had something much better than creature comforts. It had presence. It was very Charles Dickens, Page says, dank and spooky. The room I chose to live in was at the very top of the building, and the sheets were always sort of wet. Hedley Grange freaked Robert Plant and John Bonham out, but I liked it, actually. I'm pretty sure it was haunted. I remember going up the main staircase on the way to my room one night and seeing a gray shape at top. I double-checked to see if it was just a play of light, and it wasn't. So I turned around pretty fast, because I really didn't want to have an encounter with something like that. But I wasn't surprised to find spirits there, because the place had a miserable past. One real positive outcome of us recording there is that I believe we revitalized the energy at Headley. The place became lighter as a result of our stay there.
0: Well, thank you, Brad. Thanks for reading. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for writing a a great book about a uh, most fascinating figure in in rock and roll history. Um, so it's big, you know. Begin. Uh, Begin with the beginning of this. Tell me about your your first meeting with your your first encounter with Jimmy Page. Uh, you know what you expected and, and what you got.
1: Well, the first time I uh, I
0: talked to Jimmy was actually in
1: 1993. So that's uh, that's you know 20 years ago, and I didn't really think about doing a book back then. Um, I was the editor in chief of Guitar World magazine, which I still am, and. Uh, you know, I had a chance to interview Jimmy Page, and he was really, uh, you know, one of my main guys. You know, his music had grown up on it; was in my my DNA. And uh, but the only thing that frustrated me about reading about Jimmy was uh, his 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 interviews were. He always seemed really cranky. They never really revealed much about the music. You could tell that. Uh, he was more antagonized by the uh... uh, the writers and the writers all the time wanted to know about his you know the parties and the plane and the this and the that but here's jimmy page one of the greatest guitar players of all time one of the best producers one of the best uh... composers and i really wanted to know about that stuff so i took the opportunity to uh... you know to really ask him about those things that mattered about the about the music and and what made them special
0: and in 93 that would have been for the one of the box sets yeah 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 well no
1: actually it was for the uh... uh page coverdale record and uh... one of the funnier things that i remember from that is that uh... Um, i was talking to david coverdale about jimmy and asking him about him and uh... coverdale said to me "Yeah, somebody once came up to me and asked me how does jimmy strike you and, and I told him, uh, often and sometimes with a clenched fist. So.
0: so what, so you know, based on everything that you'd, to that point, read, heard, been exposed to, um, you know, what did you expect to, to find when you sat down with him and, and how did that match up with the guy, that, the guy that was there? Well,
1: you know, Jimmy was super professional but he was, I found him to be uh, cautious. Um, but he always perked up whenever you asked him about, specifically about his music. I mean, you could almost ask him anything as long as it was connected with the music. And, and since I knew something about guitar playing, since I knew something about producing music, um, I was able to speak with him on that level. But the, the one thing that... that sort of really interesting about Jimmy is his extraordinary memory and his attention to detail. Um, You know, even just a couple years ago, I remember uh, he asked me, did you ever see, if I'd ever seen Led Zeppelin live? And uh, I said, oh, yeah, 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 I saw you uh, hmm, uh, back in 73 at Cobo Hall in Detroit and immediately said, well, which night? <laughs> As if it was like yesterday, and I and I'm like, ah, yeah, it was a long time ago. I go, um, uh, one thing that I remember is that you and Robert Plant did this extended theremin solo in the middle of uh, of the song. It was really cool, but you know, it was really weird. And Jimmy goes, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You saw the second night. Uh, after we came off the stage that night, we went backstage, and Peter Grant told us never do that again
0: and so you know over the over the years and over the different encounters with him and getting to know him some from one conversation to the next did he you know did he remain as cautious did he remain that you know that did he keep that same guard up or did that start to change you know either from relationship with you or as time went on you know that's a good question uh I think how our relationship
1: grew was, I don't know if he exactly became more warm and open, but he grew to expect that I had really done my homework, that I was going to ask him really good questions about the music, and he was going to be prepared for that. And that's really the heart and soul of this book. I mean, there's been a bunch of books about Led Zeppelin or Jimmy Page's career in the Yardbirds. and, and they've all been about extraneous things, you know, the, the sort of more sensational aspects of, of his career. And I've always wanted to know more about the music. And this isn't just any band. I mean, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, you know, they've all gotten those books where people, you know, talk about what they did and their accomplishments in, in really sort of detailed ways. And that's what I was after. So Jimmy... He would almost prepare for our conversations, too, and really give me great information about the music and really, really what made that band tick.
0: So you did how many you know, full-on lengthy sessions with him over time? Probably about 15, 16, something
1: like that. We usually got together like once a year to talk.
0: And when did you start to think about this in terms of a book, or in terms of somehow bringing this stuff together? Yeah.
1: Well, I started noticing all the other people that were writing books about Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin were taking all of my material. (laughs) So I figured it was time for me to actually get busy and put something interesting uh, together myself. Um, And... uh, so it, I was probably a little slow on the uptake on that one, but but uh, y- even as, as, as little as two years ago, we had some really, really great conversations that I think added to the overall context of the of the book.
0: You put the book together in a very specific and, and deliberate structure, um, in terms of what you did with your own sessions with him in terms of when and where you bring in other voices. Um, what was it? I mean, you wanted to get to this side of the music that hadn't been sufficiently explored, but um, how did you conceive of the way that you actually assembled this thing?
1: Well, I sort of wanted it, uh, you know, the book's entitled Light and Shade, and, and uh, Jimmy talks about his music in, in terms of, of that. And I wanted there to be different hills and valleys and different ideas that would enter into it I mean it's a lot of it is Q&A with Jimmy because I figured most people really wanted to hear what he thought what he had to say much more than what I thought and what I had to say about Led Zeppelin yet I felt it might get a little bit too one-dimensional if that's all there was to it so I did want to bring in a few other voices and uh, like any piece of music, it was more of a rhythm thing. You know, I just felt, okay, this is good. I want to bring, bring another riff in over here, you know. And uh, I have some good conversations in the book uh, with uh, Jimmy and people like Jack White and uh, uh, Jeff Beck, um, Paul Rogers. And, um, and I think that they, they, they added some insight into the music that, Neither Jimmy or I even had, so it was cool.
0: Do you feel that over that time, I mean over you know 20 years of, of talking to this this person about this music, um, do you feel like his own perspective on Zeppelin's legacy and on the music has changed over time? Uh, do you feel like he has you know that there's a certain Grasp that he has on that, and that's what stayed, or has it, you know, certainly the way that the world looks at them has changed and yeah. c- crested and come up and down and come more in and out of fashion and then kind of stayed at the, the status that they've finally been sort of the last chunk of time. Um, but for him, does it, you know, does that. Uh, it's not really the way he works. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, no, I mean. It always seems like, at least from his perspective, that he knew exactly what he was going to do and, and, and what he wanted to do right at the beginning of each, of each record. You know, uh, at one point he said to me, "You know, I wanted to have artistic control and a vice grip. It's because he knew where he was going and where he wanted to drive this band. And uh, his attitude was like, ah, I'm waiting for everybody else to catch up. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes was uh, in the book. Was I was talking to him and, and uh, saying, "Did you know? Did this did the critics not understanding you at the beginning of your career? Did that bother you?" And uh, he said, "Well, you know, we were we were just uh, ahead of ourselves. They kept they, they were thinking in terms of the '60s." And I said, "Fuck the '60s! I want to chart the '70s." You know, and, and to me. That that that's uh, that's his thing. There's no revisionist theory. He he sort of had it in his mind in the, right in the beginning.
0: As a guitar player, you know, and as somebody who could actually talk substantially with him uh, about the specifics of playing, um, did uh, you know? Did your opinion or your thoughts of him as a player change? from hearing him talk about it or from getting further inside uh, how he was approaching this stuff?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, anybody reading the book, I hope that their appreciation of what went into the, the music would grow. Um, I think mostly on Led Zeppelin III, there's a chapter in the book on the, on the making of three, of and I don't believe that I appreciated it as much as, uh, you know, maybe I should have. And it was his insight into certain songs on that record that made me go back and really listen to them and and give me some fresh insight into uh, what he was doing. Um, On something like Since I've Been Loving You, uh, which is a blues, a slow blues on that record, you know, most blues guys, blues uh, songs are built around three, four chords, and, and that's it. And Zeppelin said, well, we're interested in taking this. Jimmy said, I'm interested in taking the blues to whatever that next step is going to be. And if you go into that song, I mean, he cycles through almost every chord in that key, plus some that aren't. And it's, it's more symphonic than anything. I mean, he took this very basic, primitive kind of music and, and, and almost made it sym- uh, orchestral in nature. But uh, specifically on something like the immigrant song, uh, I was like, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, where did where did that come from? And uh, he talked about how the band got together and came up with the opening riff, the gangda, and And he said, Oh, and it's great, and Robert sang that Bali High melody in the beginning of it. And it just hit me. It, the, the melody's the same melody as Bali High from South Pacific. <laughs> and then he said, oh, and you know that th- those chords in the middle, that's like me doing a little bit of Link Ray, you know? And then I'm like, uh, oh, yeah, I get that now. Link Ray. And then uh, they're singing about Vikings. So then I really started thinking about this. So you have South Pacific. You have the Broadway show tune. You have Link Ray. And you have Vikings. It's not too many bands that could actually pull all those elements together into something as as exciting as that song.
0: Purely as there's the there's the producer side, there's the songwriter side, there's the there's the visionary side. Um, as a guitar player, what is it that you think separates him from you know from virtually everybody else, or even even those up at that altitude still? there's something different that he does.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, he's not really uh, the cleanest player. And he's not the fastest or flashiest player. Um, but it's more about his very odd sense of putting chords together in harmony. It's, it's very advanced and very different. I always go to the houses of the Holy Records, you know, dancing days, um, no quarter. Those are very strange. They they use very strange chords in them or the construction of something like Stairway to Heaven. I mean, to me, what makes him a great guitarist is his composition and then plus as a producer bringing all these different elements together. Um, I asked Jimmy that directly, and uh, I'm just going to read what, you know, I said, Jimmy, how do you want people to regard you? What do you want? uh," And this is probably as succinct as I could I could ever come up with. He said, many people think of me as just a riff guitarist, but I think of myself in broader terms. As a musician, I think my greatest achievement has been to create unexpected melodies and harmonies within a rock and roll framework. And as a producer, I would like to be remembered as someone who is able to sustain a band of unquestionable talent and push it to the forefront during their working career. That's sort of what makes the guy great, you know?
0: I'm always interested in with him, you know, and, and similarly a bit with Hendrix about the you know, the early years, the apprenticeship, yeah. um, for him the session work, um, and what that training and discipline and range positioned him yeah. to then go off and do. Um, talk about that that sure. piece of the story a little bit.
1: I mean, you can't discount People talk about Led Zeppelin, but the reason that that band came on so strong and was so sophisticated was that uh, five, six years before that band formed, uh, Jimmy was one of the top session guitarists in London. It was estimated that he played on almost 60% of the music coming out of London in, in the 60s. And that wasn't just uh, you know rock tunes. I mean, he was... Playing on jazz sessions and big band sessions and commercial sessions. He uh, was often used on Burt Backrack sessions. He played uh, on Goldfinger, you know, uh, the James Bond theme. So here was a guy that not only was a great rock player, but had background in, in, in many other kinds of music. And then when he went to the Yardbirds afterwards, which is a great, great band, and and his record with them is, is highly underrated. Some fantastic stuff on it. Um, he learned how to be a, a showman. You know, He learned how to work a crowd. So by the time he came to Led Zeppelin, everything was in place. And uh, he found musicians that were uh, equal to him, but also people that he could guide, I think.
0: What's the it it remains an issue it remains an issue to this day in terms of the most recent project with the 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 o two show and the and the film yeah um is that power dynamic within within the band um <laughs> you know that's always been part of what they're wrestling with and and part yeah. of what you know does would send them from from project to project in this way um you know there's that sense that, you know, that comes through clearly from the book that, you know, to him, this was his band.
1: Yes. And, uh, I think that that was really true. And the other members of the band felt similarly until maybe towards the end, you know, after they've all enjoyed a lot of success. Um, and maybe they found, found the format restraining, but, um, I think during the course of the band, though everybody acknowledged Jimmy as the straight-up leader, but after the band broke up, everybody found their own way. I mean, particularly Robert Plant, he developed as a as a as a solo artist, uh, wanted to take his music in a different direction, and uh, I you know I think he probably feels that he had outgrown that relationship. And uh, that's what makes it very difficult for him to go, go back to that.
0: Um, so I know the point of the book, you know, was to do the music and stay away from the occult and the, you know, the the, the freak show side of the, yeah. the usual tabloid yeah. Jimmy story. But when you're, you know, when you're with him, you know, obviously he's not hanging upside down from, you know, in, in, yeah. in, a, in a coffin or any of that stuff. But. Well, do you, maybe. Do you, but, <laughs> but do you see that, you know, do you see where the interest in that stuff, where the charge from that stuff, is it something you feel when you're there with him?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Again, in the book, we do talk about uh, the occult quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the sex and the drugs, he just wants to talk about it in terms of his his art. And... Uh, you know and i think like i'm i'm trying to think of a of a good example here um but he, he'll acknowledge that for instance the famous his famous symbol the the z the big zeppelin thing is something called a magical sigil and that there was magical intent underneath that and he'll say to me, look, I never tried to hide that. I, I was the guy that made sure they wrote Do What Thou Wilt in the uh in the, the wax of Led Zeppelin III. And uh in the book he talks about how his clothes took on a ceremonial, a magical ceremonial uh element in uh in seventy seven. Um, and that you know, Crowley had a, a, a big influence on him. I mean, he's one of the largest collectors of, of Crowley stuff. And I've been to his house, and I'm like, oh, what's that over there? And he's, oh, that's, that's Alistair's ceremonial throne. <laughs> you know, you'll sort of see these things, you know, draped around. It's just that he doesn't, like anybody's belief system, anybody's religion, he just doesn't want it trivialized. So um, there's a big section in the book about his occult leanings, my explanation about it, and about his occult bookstore that he had uh, during the 70s. I
0: have two quick things I want to make sure to get through. One is to talk about the post-Zeppelin work a little bit yeah, um, and what, uh, you know, it's certainly not been an easy road um, in terms of what what's come out and and what hasn't come out right um and you know what's your how do you look across the the landscape of of what's happened since 1980 with the work that
1: he's done well it's sort of weird i mean he's actually done a lot of work i mean most people think maybe it hasn't been of the magnitude of of led zeppelin but um you know he put out a Uh, uh, you know solo album he did a couple of movie soundtrack things he's been in charge of the Zeppelin archives he did you know two records with Page and Plant Uh, um, he hasn't been terribly prolific but he hasn't exactly been a hermit he did the record with the Black Crows Um, and I think that that and the firm of course you know so what was actually a pleasure of doing this book was going back to those moments, I might might have overlooked or not thought of in quite a while, and found some really fantastic things there. Like, I think sa- somebody could do cover satisfaction guaranteed by the firm right now and have a really could have a hit record. You know, um, you know, there are beautiful instrumentals like Emerald Eyes off of his uh, his solo career, and I, and I think like a lot of walking into Clarksdale. Uh, the Page and Plant record you know it was very contemporary sounding and and a really good record Um, but seriously I I know that Jimmy's worked on a couple of he's got one really 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 big project he's been working on for a while that he keeps threatening to uh, unleash and then he says Led Zeppelin just keeps rearing its head you know taking me away from it so uh, I don't know I think we'll hear some new music out of him I think we will I hope it's so. Yeah.
0: So last thing and then we'll go to questions there. But sure. what's your own, you know, what's your favorite uh Jimmy Page moment? Uh well we'll assume it's a let's assume it's a Zeppelin moment. It doesn't uh-huh. have to be. But uh if you've you know if you've got to choose one, uh what's what's the one? Well the, the the Zeppelin
1: moment, the the song I think is the best is Achilles Last Stand is my favorite because it has uh it has all these progressive elements to it. But it's also got, you know, it's completely got balls to it, which is what makes Led Zeppelin great, you know, what separates them from all the other bands is that, you know, this great sense of harmony, melody, but also this, you know, sense of excitement and strength. And I think it also has one of Jimmy's best guitar solos on it, too. How about you, Alan? What's your favorite?
0: God, it's You know, I have a funny, I was a child of the 80s, I grew up with a very. F- I resisted Zeppelin for a long, long time because yeah. there were so many terrible bands that claimed, you know, that that's where they came from, right, right. and so it took a long time for me to really be able to hear what was really going on there. So lately, I've been. It's been a lot of like the funk. I mean, a lot of sort of trampled underfoot, custard yeah. pie, those kind of tracks. But if it's one, the one that turned me um, was "Over the Hills and Far Away" on uh, on Houses of the Holy. Yeah. Um. As a song that just kind of showed everything that they could do, that it had all the textures, that it went up and down and went through a a journey like that, Um, that was really the one where I said, "There's more here than I've given them credit for." Yeah. Um, growing up, and so I'll you know I've always got to sort of put that as as a favorite. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've I've, uh, you know, sort of like you, like a lot of the biggies you know, you you can't even almost listen to them anymore. So I've been finding myself going back to Three and Presence and some of the other records, it's great.
0: Okay, Uh, so we'll go to any questions from any of you guys?
2: You'd mentioned uh, Jimmy Page. You feel like he hadn't gotten his fair share in terms of books that had been written about him, and that was an inspiration for you. Um, Who else is out there that you feel has not been properly documented are there other artists that you would like to explore in terms of a possible book, or anybody who you just feel hasn't gotten their uh, their voice heard in a proper way?
1: Um, you know, it's, it, <laughs> it's it, that that's becoming a rarer and rarer thing. A lot of people have gone over the classic rock thing. You know, you have magazines like Mojo or even Guitar World where we examine that. Uh, one guy that I would really like to hear his story, I find him sort of a fascinating character, and, and I think that th- there might be a book in the works, is uh, John Fogarty, who I think is playing tonight actually with uh, Dave Grohl, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Fascinating band, St- timeless music, you know, completely, I think, helped invent modern country music. You know, and a guy that had this meteoric career that went on for like three or four years and then he disappears for like 15 years. And uh, it's just a lot of it. Uh, I, I think Johnny's John's story would be cool.
0: Leaving aside the book side of that, uh, just in terms of guitar players, do you have a you know a favorite underrated, uh, whether they've got a great story to tell or not, is there anybody that, that you look at as really underappreciated?
1: Yeah, actually... Um, it's I don't know how I missed it. I actually blogged about this the other day because there was this one guitar player I mean I should know about him I've heard about him, I knew he's fantastic, and I just never sat down and really listened to him and I just did recently and he, and he's great and I don't know why I never did but um uh Mike Bloomfield uh sure. is a fantastic guitar player and you know, from what I understand, he has a pretty uh, interesting and unusual story yeah, as well. That's a story
0: to tell, but a, a, but a tough one to, yeah, you know, pull out. Yeah. Hi. I was oh. wondering if any of your conversations after um, with Jimmy, you
1: heard a new track and you kind of were like, oh, I understood what he was saying now. Maybe in, during the conversation, he was speaking about what he was doing and you didn't really get it. And then you just had that aha moment and what that was like, or if there was like foreshadowing from previous conversations over 20 years and a track, you know, 20 years later, really rang a bell of a previous conversation that you had with him. Yeah, I think there's, there's been a bunch of those things. I mean, where he's talked about a track in detail, and then all of a sudden, I went back to it. And I said, you know, I didn't really notice that. I mean, he I think he considers really as recording pinnacle is probably when the levy breaks. And, uh, you know, he was mentioning, oh, there's this backwards guitar on it. And then we, every time a verse comes around, we add another new layer onto it, new layer until it builds and builds. And then we do this swirling thing with the mix at the end, you know. And um, I've always loved that song, great hypnotic song. But if you really sit down, it's one of those things you put on the headphones and you start going, okay, put this in. The next time it goes around, it's got that, it's got that, it's got that. But uh, I think also, I was saying earlier, I was sort of cracking up with uh, Immigrant Song. You know, great song, but you know, the revelation that Plant sort of borrowed a little from Bali High and, and that the crashing chords, the E and the A, and a grang, grang right before the vocals come in. Was sort of a pinch of Link Ray's Rumble, you know, and then going back and listening to Rumble and hearing that, I was like, ah, you know, that's that's really cool, and and and, you know, Zeppelin always sort of gets. You know, everybody says, oh, they stole this, they stole that, they they took this, but to me, I don't know about you, Alan, but I, I think the most interesting, one of the most interesting about music, is shared tradition, our people. Um, you know, getting things from previous things. Any musician that tells you that they just made up something and it came from absolutely nowhere is is lying to you, you know? There's, I love folk music. I worked at a folk and bluegrass store. You know, there's a song called Where the Circle Be Unbroken, you know? And um, I, I love that kind of stuff. Like, oh, he got that, he got that. Of course, if, if the musician didn't put their own unique spin on it, then we wouldn't care, you know, but they put their own unique spin on it. Um, Jimmy's sensitivity about critics not liking Led Zeppelin, yeah. uh, not acknowledging it, when he would talk about it, would there be a moment when he'd suddenly be aware, hey, you're one of them. <laughs> and would his, either his body language or suddenly would darts come out of his eyes towards you?
0: Did you have to take the hit for all the rest?
1: Yeah you know I, I like i said i i i spent a lot of time with him you know 2 3 hours at a stretch and i don't think that there was any time when i was actually interviewing him that that notion wasn't present that he wasn't ready to say to me you got that wrong or you know how dare you you know like he he was waiting almost waiting to pounce <laughs> and to right the wrongs. And, and that was actually sort of the tricky part about interviewing him, was like, look it, I'm here to celebrate your art, your music. I'm not here to kiss your ass, but you know what, I consider you to be one of the great artists of the 20th century, great musicians. I want to know how you did your thing. I, I, I want to really understand that because it's historically important. And it always seems like it seems funny to, to put Led Zeppelin in historic perspective like you do the Beatles or the Stones or the Who. But they're an important band. They changed the way many things are being recorded. The way Jimmy recorded John Bonham's drums had major impact on popular music. He was one of the first guys to take the drums and put them right up there with the vocals, and 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 that's the way music is all, is is listened to now in, in in contemporary music is, it's the vocals, the drums, and sort of everything else. That's a thing. That's that's a page invention. Um, so I think once he sort of understood that that's what I was there for, uh, he'd let me go. But but. But you know, he was always waiting for me to. <laughs>
0: I mean, I've I've not spent real time with him. I've had a, a couple of phone conversations with yeah. him, um, you know, which have always gone fine and and you know perfectly pleasant. But every time, unsolicited, he will bring up how the critics didn't understand, how it, they all you know missed yeah. what they were doing. How yeah. like it's it's clearly. I mean, I don't know if it's never far from his mind, but when he's in that setting. What he's in that it's setting. It's obviously never far from his mind. Yeah,
1: and it's sort of weird. I, I, I sort of find people, you know, if anybody had any criticism about the book, it was more of like, well, you didn't get the, you know, the sex and the drugs and all this. But, you know, I mean, we would talk a little bit about the drugs and and we would talk a little bit about this and it'd always be sort of like, okay, let's talk about that. And he'd, and he'd be like, um... Uh, well, he'd sort of size me up and be like, uh, "Well, y- y- you've had sex before, right?" And uh, I'd be like, "Yeah." And he'd be like, mm. uh, "With a girl, <laughs> I, yeah." Well, just think about it in terms of having many, 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 g- <laughs> and and you tell me, you know, <laughs> if you think that that's a good thing or not, you know. So after I mean really uh it 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 gets to be a little absurd especially when the guy has created such a great body of work to sort of obsess about that kind
0: of thing. Um I mean I think there's a think there's a legitimate context in which to bring some of that stuff up yeah. in terms of you know where when and where and how it did impact what the work was, what the environment was and yeah. what that sense of you know, if it is about the kind of questing and pushing your yourself to those limits and experiencing those things, I mean, that's not completely divorced from no, it's not what you're creating. And no, I think sometimes not. that you know yeah. they're a little disingenuous about you, you know, recognizing that, but not yeah. then going in any further. And that's not just him. That's you know,
1: but but I think any uh idiot can have sex and do drugs, but not anybody can write Stairway to Heaven. So for me, that was more important to get at. And, and there had just been other people that had, that, that had gone there many, many times, you know. Hey, man. Hey, Bill. Um, a couple of people and yourself have mentioned Link Ray tonight. And I think if you ask most people what their favorite scene in the movie It Might Get Loud is, it's the scene where Jimmy's in his music room and he puts on a 45 of Rumble by Link Ray and starts air guitaring, which is a pretty surreal scene in itself. I'm just wondering you know, he's such a big music fan and it comes across in that scene. Have you ever had the experience of listening to music with Jimmy and seeing that big music fan in him come out in the same way? Yeah, I, actually, when he was uh, in town, um, to promote the movie the the DVD Celebration Day we uh we went to the iridium to see Joe Walsh play and uh Joe it actually sold Jimmy the Les Paul that he the famous Les Paul that Jimmy used in you know in the Zeppelin heyday and uh he's a huge huge music fan and you know he just had a great time watching Joe in this session in this in this Thing. and you know the other thing that's interesting about him is he will never say a bad thing about another musician like you know for him they're 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 in a brotherhood doing all the the same kinds of things so he's a he's a huge music fan one interesting thing is just recently is how do, i can't remember how it came up but uh he was saying you know, the one thing nobody ever asked me about is Buddy Holly. And uh Buddy Holly was a huge huge thing. And again that came up with uh uh with Eric Clapton. Uh the, they just uh did a uh,
0: um, with a his, replica of his new, of new line his, of the guitars. Yeah. Of his
1: new line of guitars, and the reason that he picked up a Stratocaster was because of Buddy Holly. Right. Nobody ever thinks about Buddy Holly as being the big guitar hero, but huge influence on those guys. It's interesting.
0: Well, and then a huge influence on the Dylan's and the Beatles of the world because oh, yeah. he was because he was writing. Yeah, so uh, uh, a lot that Buddy Holly was doing.
2: Hi. Um, one of the things I've noticed in listening to Led Zeppelin now um, is the poetry of the music like I find as a band from that time that they have a very um, driving hard sound which Mm -hmm. was very rock and roll but there's a lot of unpredictable moments in the music which are very beautiful and um, I was surprised when you said um, they were riffing on things like um, Bally High and um, uh, Vikings I'd heard but what I wondered is, were they reconstructing that with every performance, or relying on some improv to get their sound? Because I'm amazed when I'm hearing some of the tracks that they are as um, poetic as they are. Like, mm-hmm. were they rehearsing that, or was that just like magic on some nights, and and not always something they kept doing?
1: Well, I, you know, that's a really good question because one of the things that comes up with uh, in almost every conversation with jimmy besides his hatred of of my of my ilk is um something that he calls the alchemy between especially in led zeppelin he would always say it was the four of us together creating a mysterious fifth element and he would and uh and a lot of times he would talk about how the magic would come through them um so when you, write, when you write and create music, I think it comes to you in all, all sorts of different ways. Uh, and some of it is, you know, you have to sort of muscle your way through and think about, and then others, it just mysteriously pops up. But I think the combination of those four people, they were able to create a lot more magic than, than, than most were. And he would also say, you know, every night, especially in performances, they wanted it to be different.
0: I think that, and I hope that I'm remembering this from your book, Mm -hmm. um, a a thing that I thought a lot about while reading it is, you know, uh, that I can't think of another band, even a band of that magnitude, where the balance between the players, you know, where the strength of each piece is so distinct and so strong. Right. um, That... You know, I mean, not you can't get into a like who's better, the Stones or the Who or Zeppelin or whatever it yeah. is, but there is a different thing about the way those guys played together than the way those other bands played together in terms of it's not a it's not a leader and follower. It's this really precise balance of pieces.
1: Right. Um, well, you know, uh, there's an interview in the book with Danny Goldberg, who was there. Um, he was a PR guy for them, but he went on to manage Nirvana and the Allman Brothers and a, and, and a bunch of other people and a really smart, intelligent guy. And he was say, saying, you know, when you take a band and their most low-key player, he wouldn't call it their weakest link, is is the bass player. And that bass player is John Paul Jones, who any band would give their... You know, left arm to have in their band. That's that's a pretty damn good band. When the when the bass player is uh, somebody who can write something like Black Dog or, you know, um, Celebration. It was, Day. I mean, it's
0: funny. I've had other. I've had people say that the the big revelation watching, the the big takeaway from watching the recent Celebration Day DVD was their appreciation for John Paul Jones.
1: Oh yeah, guys. I mean, in monster. terms of who's under who's <laughs>
0: underrated in a band next to Jimmy Page and John Bonham? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, that's not a you know not, only not a weak link, but there's all kinds of things that he's bringing in. and I think that you know the, that combination of elements is uh, really I mean it's truly unique. Yeah yeah: Guys, let's have a really warm round of applause for our guest tonight. Thank you, guys, Brad so Talinsky, and of course, for Alan Light. please. Head on over to the iBookstore, download your copy, and thank you so much for coming out and hanging out with us this evening.